The Tom Sumner Program. Old fashioned radio for a new generation. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, John. You know that. Yay, I, Tom! <laughs> I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Have an easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, that's a very good question. Uh, hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Hey, lucky day, Mr. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor-comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, what's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. This is Mayor Sheldon Neely, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Show. Hey, welcome back, everybody. As we roll into the third half of our three-hour tour, we're going to talk about privatization. That's something we hear very often, but I'm not sure that a lot of people really understand what that means and what the ramifications are. As described in a new book by the founder and executive director of In the Public Interest, an Oakland-based, uh, Oakland, California-based uh, National Research and Policy Center that studies public goods and services. And the book is called The Privatization of Everything, How the Plunder of Public Goods Transformed America and How We Can Fight Back by uh, Donald Cohen, who joins me by phone. Hi, Donald. Welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me, Tom. Um, I, you know, I have to ask you, I hear about um, this notion of privatization all the time, and we talk about, you know, whether we should have a private company, as we do in Flint, where my show is based, Flint, Michigan, um, picking up the trash. Or... Um, you know, some people have suggested that we need to, to farm out. Um, here's here's a new <laughs> new one, Donald, that we need to farm out the oversight for the expenditure of uh, the stimulus dollars from okay. uh, the federal government uh, to various uh, states and cities. Um, but let me let me ask you this, because in theory. Uh, people that are advocating for privatizing certain government services will suggest that that American businesses are are so lean and so good at getting things done efficiently that it will save money. But I can't get past my impression that a government budget or a nonprofit organization's budget has a, you know a zero balance where a private company needs to put something on the bottom line and i just can't understand how somebody who doesn't have to make a profit can't do it cheaper than somebody who is trying to make a profit that's right that's a that's a great point um i, I think because you know the that we all this belief of efficiency, the private sector versus the public sector, the efficiency is you know really takes us away from a real conversation about what it means to provide services. So as you say, if a private company is providing the trash or providing you know or running a prison or what have you, they've you know they say they do efficient more efficiently. But first thing to remember is they take 
you know, they have to return have returns to their investors and profits. They have to, you know, they often pay much higher salaries to their, at least to their executives, you know, their executive teams. They often uh, have debt service, you know, because they buy other companies. That, you know, that's going on all the time. And so if they say they can do it cheaper, um, you know, where are they getting that money? What are they going to spend less on in providing the service so that they can, so that those, you know, to offset those, the, the money that's leaving, right? It's leaving the service, and it's pretty simple. Um, there's not that many places you can take it up. You know, you can you can save money. You can give less services, right? If you privatize, you know, when Iowa, for example, privatized its Medicaid, like, you know, people had less health care. I mean, you can just you can you know you can do less. Um, when a prison gets privatized, they can either have fewer corrections officers, which they've done, and, and you know, and, and bad things happen. You have, you know, there's a prison, a, a juvenile prison in Mississippi that went from one to twelve corrections officers to inmates, to um, twelve to one to sixty to one. I mean, it's nuts, right? So you can have fewer workers, you can pay them less. That creates, you know, other problems, higher turnover. Um, or you can have crappier equipment, right? You're in Flint. Um, I think it was in Michigan where, in, a, in, a, in prisons there, where they outsource the food service in, in prisons. I was just Aaron. thinking about that, um, Donald. I, I was just thinking about that very thing. They, they privatized the food service in state prisons. And, and suffice it to say, you would not want to eat there. Well, and here's, here's what's really important about that. Well, so the food, they use crappier food. Um, they, they found maggots in the food. You know, it was just they spent less on the quality of the food. But here's what's important about that: you want you, you want I've been in you know visited prisons. You want prisons to be safe, right? You want them to you know. And the two most important things: every corrections officer, every person who works in a prison tells me that the two most important things to keep a prison safe and inmates you know you know secure is have the is the food and the phones and access to the phones. So it has you know to have crummier food has impacts on the quality and the and what happens in this in in the facility so these have upstream impacts so when i when you know just to finalize when they say they can do it more efficiently we just ask a simple question you're going to you say you're going to do it cheaper tell us what you're going to spend less on yeah exactly and and it's um I don't know. A lot of people, because of the stories of, you know, $400, $500 hammers and stuff in the military, um, you know, they see these stories, these exposés, and they just assume that that all government operations are spending too much money for what they're getting. Well, just on that point alone, right, we all have the $600 hammer, whatever the dog in our heads. Right? Yeah, right. That happened, right. But think about what that, what really going on there. First off, it's a private contractor that billed the government $600 for the hammer. Okay, so you know, <laughs> they asked, for, that's the first thing. The second thing that that raises, again, is a larger issue, is that when we, when things, you know, governments, con- we all contract for things. Governments contract for things. They buy things. That's, you know, that, that happens not good or bad it just is but if you don't have oversight if you don't have people who are watching who are auditing who are paying attention which governments don't have adequately then things like that happen so it it really raises the question what is contractors are bilking us 
And we don't have the staff and the expertise because we haven't funded those positions you know, to, to keep things under control. Well, my foil hat friends usually believe they're getting the uh, hammer for $1.85 and <laughs> tucking $495 away to fund some secret illegal project. No, that's not what it is. I think it's, you know, it's real simple. <clears throat> you know, I, I have this, I, I talk about this. Businesses do one thing. They sell stuff. They want to make as much money for the things, they want to charge as much as they can for the things they sell, and they want to spend as, as little as possible, as as reasonable, to produce it. And, you know, that's kind of the story of, you know, outsourcing and privatization of public services to a great extent. They charge us as much as they can, which, you know, that's what they do, okay? Uh, and they cut corners. And then the question is, you know, are they cutting corners? Are they charging too much? And are we paying attention carefully enough? Carefully enough? Or are, And are they cutting corners on things that really matter? Donald, um, and, and I'm not trying to trip you up here, but do you have any sense of how privatization first happened? Yeah, well, in, in some ways, you know, it's so there's a few things I'll say there. Um, it's important to recognize that governments have been contracting forever. The issue is not contracting. The issue is control and how we do it and all of that. So that's, you Well, know, it's handing the service over to another entity. Yeah, but it's also, you know, hiring a, a general contractor to build a road, right? So they've been contracting for that, which is totally legitimate, and they all do it, right? And so they've always been contracting for things. Okay, so then there's a question of when are you going to hand over, you know, f fundamental services, not the road, but actually the, you know, the, the people maintaining the road, right? Because that's a forever. So it, I think it really is driven by a few things. One is there's a there's kind of a worldview, there's a conservative worldview that basically says government should not be in the business, you know, it should be in the, in the job of providing services, that should be in the market, right? You know, Milton Friedman, um, you know, he said, I have to find the quote, but about education, let me just find it real quick. Um, uh, it, this is Milton Friedman, in the, I, I can't remember exactly when, a conservative economist said, in my, about education, in my ideal world, government would not be responsible for providing education any more than it is for providing food and clothing. In other words, those things should be in the market, just like we buy food and clothing. So there's an ideological piece here. Then the, the, the second piece to remember is there's a lot of money to be made. Um, if you're a private company or a corporation or company, you want to sell things, as I mentioned, you know, there's trillions of dollars spent every year by governments in America. You know, if you're a business and you're not looking at that as part, you know, you'd wonder why not um, as a possible as possible sales opportunity. And then, you know, and then the third piece, of course, is, you know, politicians that want to shrink government, et cetera, et cetera. Um, what's interesting about when it, in terms of when it really came forth in a big way, privatization, because there have been folks wanting to do the big stuff for a long time, privatize Social Security and all sorts of stuff. You know, people think it's Reagan, but it wasn't Reagan. It was actually, you know, Reagan failed. Uh, he, he was not able to privatize big things. And what the, you know, what cons conservative strategists realize is they could use privatization as a political and economic strategy to downsize government. Um, and, you know, and that became center stage in later in the Reagan years and even in the Clinton years. Um, you know, a lot of, you know, we, there was a whole shift in that we think 
again, as you're saying, the private sector can do it better. Markets are more effective tools. Competition will help. It's all very much baked in right now. Well, George Washington uh, would have rebutted uh, Friedman. Um, he uh, said in his um, farewell address, he was talking about education, and if a democracy expects its citizens to participate in deciding how it is to be governed, that that government owes it to its citizens to ensure that they're well-educated. Well, that, that's exactly right. And, and to, you know, we define privatization in, in a particular way. Um, I, I, I'll, I'll say it, and then I'll say what I mean. So it's private control over public goods. That's how I, that's my definition. Now, public goods, they're things that we all need and we, all, and we need everyone to have. Everyone to be healthy, everyone to be educated, everyone to be able to move around, to, you know, have transportation opportunities, all sorts of things that we all fundamentally need. But when, pri- then the private, with privatization, when we hand it over, you know, either a prison or, a, you know, the food in a prison or a water system or what have you, we're giving them control over that. And so that's really important. Um, but we're also, you know, so let's take, so the issue is not so much contracting as it is control. And here, I'm saying this in particular, I want to point to the, the trash, right, the, the sanitation that's outsourced in, in, uh, in Flint, as you say. No, I haven't looked at that contract. But there's lots of outsourced uh, sanitation around the country. Some's public, some's private. And people, you know, residents and citizens don't really usually don't know who the worker works for. Is it for the city? Is it for a waste management company or what have you? But they do know it's a public service, and they think we ought to have control over it. There ought to be standards. There ought to be, uh, you know, the workers ought to, you know, the the, the staff ought to be well paid so that, you know, the job, they have high quality staff and all that. So that's the issue of con- that's why the issue of control is so important that we set for even the things that are contracted, we we make sure we have standards, and then we have uh, cops on the beat, as it were, monitors, and that it actually enforce those standards. Um, Donald, I have to take a uh, a break here in about a minute, um, and and so I don't want to dig down on on anything too deep, but. Uh, um, can you stick around for a few minutes so we can talk some more? Absolutely. All right. My guest is uh, Donald Cohen. He is the founder and executive director of In the Public Interest, an Oakland, California-based national research and policy center that studies public goods and services. And um, his new book is The Private the Privatization of Everything, How the Plunder of Public Goods Transformed America and how we can fight back, and um, and and Donald, I, I want to dig down on uh, on your definition of uh, public goods and and what it means to plunder them when we uh, when we come back. If you're listening to us at ninety two point one LPFM in Flint, they are a broadcast service uh, of um, the Flint Odyssey House Spectacle Productions, and my good friend Paul Herring. Uh, they are WFOV, Our Voices Radio. Um, we're going to let them squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we go to break. If you're streaming us at TomSumnerProgram.com, we have some messages as well. And then we'll be back with my guest, Donald Cohen, and more of the Tom Sumner Program straight ahead. So don't touch that dial. Don't click that mouse. <laughs> 
I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is working to help keep you and your community safe from the threat of novel or new coronavirus. If you have traveled to a country with a widespread outbreak of COVID-19, CDC recommends you stay home and check your health for 14 days after returning to the United States. Take your temperature with a thermometer two times a day. Watch for symptoms like fever, cough, and trouble breathing. And if you feel sick or have symptoms, call ahead before you go to a doctor's office or emergency room. Tell the doctor about your recent travel and your symptoms and avoid contact with others. For more information, visit cdc.gov. Hey, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. Catch me and a gaggle of great guests weekdays on Our Voices Radio, WFOVLP 92.1 FM. You never know who might drop by. Joe Biden from the Blue Hornets. Dan Serling. Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondrick. Actor, comedian Joe Napote. Woodrow Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow. State Senator Jim Annan. Comedian Brian McCree. The unknown comic. Mark Farner. And Tom, I want you to know Tom's my friend. You, you've always got great questions, and you know the material, and you, and you care about it, and it's, uh, it's, that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I've got willing to admit that. <laughs> hey, Tom, this is my favorite interview all It's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you. Tune in Monday through Friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a Kind. And check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com. Hello. Speaking. Oh, dear. Honey, our car warranty is expiring again. So soon? It just expired last week. You don't even own a car! Not now, Dana. Your father's on the phone. Hey! Mom and Dad, you're being scammed! It's a robocall! Scammers are using new technology and clever tactics to make more and more calls that look legitimate, but are hard to trace. They can make it look like they're calling from any number, even from numbers of people you know. My robocall crackdown team is working with state and federal partners to stop the robocalls for good, but I need your guys' help. Don't trust your caller ID. Verify you're really talking to the person whose number appears when your phone rings. If you accidentally answer a robocall, hang up right away. Engaging in conversation will only lead to more calls. Use a call blocking app on your cell phone that stops robocalls before they interrupt your day. And if you do get a robocall, File a complaint with my office online at mi.gov slash robocalls. And mom, dad, please do not give your information out to these scammers over the phone. They're just trying to trick you. Well, at least they call. No, I get it. You're busy. But you know, Janine's daughter is a doctor. She calls every week. A doctor. I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. 
Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection. Hello, this is State Senator Jim Ananick, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody. We continue my uh, conversation with the author of a new book called The Privatization of Everything, Donald Cohen. He joins me by phone. Donald, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around, and sorry to make you sit through all that. Uh, no problem. I enjoyed it. Um, I mentioned before the break, Donald, that I wanted to talk about this subtitle for the book. The book is called The Privatization of Everything, How the Plunder of Public Goods Transformed America and How We Can Fight Back. Um, let's talk about uh, this this notion of plunder of public goods. Um, how is it, it plunder if we're turning uh, control over to a company when we privatize services uh, like trash collection, for example. Yeah, well, let me let me give a couple of examples, not not in trash, but um, just to it'll illustrate, I think, well. So um, universities now are starting to privatize their dorms, right? You know, okay. The building of them, perhaps, or the you know, or just maintenance and operations of them, just sort of control of them. You know, they're going to run the, the dorms. So a number of universities have done this with a with a particular company. I think it's called Curvias, or uh, I think that's how you pronounce it. And so here's an illustration. When the pandemic started, obviously all universities pretty much closed down, sent kids home. When universities started to want to bring back uh, their students, um, you know, slowly, and they wanted to do it with you know with good public health uh, guidance and all of that. Um, they they did they they were a couple of universities that I looked into started to do that particularly Wayne State in, you know right there in Michigan and mm-hmm. Georgia State also I think there were others as well when they did that they, when they planned to do that to bring back students but with lower occupancy in the dorm you know less kids so that you know for social distancing they received a letter from the company's lawyers that included the following statement. The university does not have the unilateral right under the agreement to institute a policy that would limit the number of students who can occupy student housing. Okay, so let me break that down. The university (laughs) signed a long-term contract, because that's really what this is. It's a privatized contract with the company to run the dorms for some period, a long period of time. And what they handed over was control (laughs) of the health of the students in that dorm right so now a university that you know in part its responsibility is is to keep their students healthy and, and educated and all that can no longer exercise that responsibility because they're contractually obligated to keeping that company profitable and that contract profitable for the company that's you know what we mean by control i'll give i'll give one more example that you may be you, you may be familiar with given you know that you're in michigan it, this is about Chicago. So in 2008, I think it was, the, you know, the worst of the recession. Cities are all bleeding red ink. It's, you know, horrible times. Um, the city, you know, the, the mayor at the time, Mayor Daley, uh, announced a proposal from a consortium of private companies, investors, Wall Street, uh, Morgan Stanley, a Wall Street company, a fund from the Middle East, and a national parking company. And those companies offered the city $1.1 billion up front. You know, there's a crisis going on, and they could get some cash in hand. Um, in exchange for control of the city's set 36,000 parking meters for 75 years. Okay. 
and then vote quickly. So they voted, they did the deal, they were desperate, whatever. Two things are true were true about it after the fact that we that we that we all learned. One is, it's an incredibly stupid way to borrow money on your future income, right? Because who knows if we're going to be driving in seventy five years? It's but even if that was the only option in a sea of horrible options, they sold a billion dollars too cheaply. They got taken just on the numbers, just on you know on the finances of it. But it, you know, it was a stupid. Everyone hates the deal. But here's what's worse about this. Um, now that if the city, for the remaining 60-some-odd years of the contract, if they want to eliminate spots, either temporarily for a street fair, but more importantly for you know bus lanes, dedicated bus lanes or bike lanes or street malls, they have to buy the spots back, right? So they have to keep the company whole and profitable for, for the 75 years that, will, that, are, that is now tying the hands of the city to do their job, right? Which is, you know, the city does the, you know, land use, transportation, housing, you know, keeping the air clean, a whole set of really important responsibilities of local government. They, you know, they are, you know, they're straitjacketed. And then, you know, the, you know, the parking rates, of course, went way up. They're going to make their, their break-even point comes at about 15 years. So they're going to have 60 years, you know, they'll have to keep maintaining the system, but they'll have 60 years of, of gravy, of, of profit. So... That's what I mean by plunder. It's both taking, it's both extracting the money, for, you know, a, a lot of money, but it's also extracting uh, and uh, plundering our democratic rights and our ability to make decisions about things that matter to all of us. There was one uh, here in the city of Flint, Donald, just to share you a, a horror story with you. There was a, a tall building, 19-story building in downtown Flint that had gone into disrepair, and uh, a, a very cantankerous mayor at the time um, challenged the owner uh, to fix up the building and, and to make it the taxes on the building whole, but he didn't adjust the tax price to what the current standard was. He set the taxes at some ridiculous amount of money, like $8 million or something. And uh, the guy sued, and the judge thought the mayor had been out of line. So he said if they were going to condemn the building, the city would have to buy it from the guy at the price they set. So the city of Flint, which was broke at the time, had to buy a building in downtown Flint for $8 million, which they assessed the residents for. Now, the story gets even weirder when the city then sells the building to a development group for a dollar who uses federal and state block grant money to tear it down. I'm not sure I know what to say about that. That's I, quite a story. It's one of the weirdest convoluted land deals involving, you know, private, public, you know, entities. It, it was, it, it's just, and and there are others, and I'm sure you know of some, yeah. some very interesting stories um, about that. But what about, you know, when we talk about like these trash uh contracts yep. that go to companies very often the city will then include 
turning its fleet over yeah. to the company. And right. I think that's the kind of thing you're talking about when you talk about plundering public goods. You know, here the city had some assets that they owned, but in negotiating this contract for the trash pickup to get a better deal or whatever, they threw the trucks in. So right. now they don't have the asset anymore, and this company is no longer providing the trash service. We've changed companies once or twice since then. But they've got all the trucks. That's a really good point. I had not. Th- uh, that's exactly right, and that happens a lot. And here's the. the I, I think point. it does happen a lot. I'm not picking on Flint this well, time. No, it happens in school buses. You know, when they out- sure. when they privatize school buses and things like that. And here's what's really you know here's the a larger idea that I mean a larger uh, dynamic about that is the city then no longer also has the ability to take back the service. Exactly. Right. So I mean, if let's say they. You know, they outsource it to a fantastic company. They're doing a great job, and but they leave and they go bankrupt or what have you. And the city wants to now, you know, has and they leave quickly. <laughs> just to sort of imagine the, the scenario, the city's got to pick up the trash, right? You know, every day it doesn't get to not pick up the trash trash for a month while they look for another company if they're going to do that. And they don't have the capacity to do that. They don't have the staff to do it because they've you know they've eliminated the you know this expertise. They don't have the trucks to do it. You know, again, that's what we mean about control. You got to this. The city can't outsource its responsibility to you know for clean streets. That's a public responsibility. Whoever's doing it, and it, you know, uh, and the city's got to make sure they can always do it, regardless of how whether they're contracting or not. Um, and that's one of the ways they, they they hand it over in a in a really bad way. Well, in the in the trash uh, collection example I just mentioned uh, in the city of Flint, um, this just this uh, last year, 2021, we had uh, municipal elections uh, for city council, and that was one of the things people talked about. Several of the candidates coming in said, said, you know. We shouldn't be paying another company to collect our trash. We should do that in-house, and it would create mm-hmm. jobs. But they didn't realize the expense involved in transitioning back because they'd have to right. purchase new trucks and hire That's people, right. and, and the city doesn't have the money to do it. But it was, it's been part of the debate and part of the, uh, the discussion. So the question then becomes, the city finds itself in that position where a lot of people, John Q. Public and, and uh, uh, aspiring uh, representatives and so on, are, are looking at and thinking maybe this is something the city should be doing on its own. Um, how, how, do we, how do we go back? How do we get it back? How do we put the toothpaste back in the tube? Well, obviously, the first point is don't let it go in the first place. But <laughs> wouldn't that wouldn't that be great? Talk about hindsight. Well, so the other thing is thinking ahead about contracting. You know, I think you know we actually uh, my re- our research director, of my organization, did a re- uh, did some analysis a number of years back about different san- trash contracts around the country, and there were good contracts and there were bad contracts. Good contracts, and I don't have the. And recall the details, but you know they were done well. They had standards. There was oversight. You know I don't know how they dealt with the ownership of the trucks, but you know they were sort of better, you know, done better. You know, with more with more control. And so, first thing to remember always is that um, the first up the the that in 
the contracting process, right, which do, which happens periodically, right? There's renewal on these contracts, right? They're they're sure. term limited, so the contracting process, you always have to be asking the hard questions, right? What happens if, you know, we're going to give you this contract, but what happens if you go away and we don't have trucks? Deal with that in the contracting process going forward, in the renewal, next time they renew it. Because the city has decided and should decide that it needs the capacity in-house to pick up the ball, even if they're going to just give it to another contractor. So I think, you know, so going forward, you know, the contracting process is where, you know, a lot of this can be fixed, right? Um, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure how they get, you know, in, in terms of getting the, you know, raising the resources to buy the trucks back, that's a financial equation. You can maybe you can borrow the money to do that and just pay it back. I mean, it's, you know, you know, you can look at the finances, and that may be the same amount of money that you know that's leaving the system for profits. It's possible. I wouldn't even I wouldn't take that out of the possibility, right? Um, if you're going to um, just the you know the paying the paying back the the loan, so that's sort of crucially important. Um, the renewal process and the and the contracting process. Do it right, because if you do it right, you can get control of it. Um, is there an arc with privatization like once it began it got popular and 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 was on the rise for a while and now seems to be waning a little or is it as popular as ever well it depends on where um and when so at some level there's some you know there are it's Kind of all things are true. There are places around the country, I think there's quite a few places that have remunicipalized, brought back in their privatized water systems, right? So that's because they just didn't work out. They thought they they realized they could do it better and they wanted control over it. So that's happening. But there's also places where, you know, it's not just red states, but it's, you know, there are red states that, you know, they're trying to privatize everything their schools, their water systems, you know, everything you. You know, because for them, it's a, there's a political agenda, right? Downsize government, hand it over, um, put things in the market. So it's sort of both things are happening. I wouldn't say it's waning, um, but I would say that there are places where there are vigorous fights over it, and they, you know, and both both sides win, <laughs> both sides lose. Um, is is there a grassroots way to um, to to take back? public control of, of public goods? Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. I mean, again, it's all about people making things happen, people deciding, you know, grassroots organizations, others elected officials, saying, we want control of our public services and public things. You know, that's the first step. And, you know, that's important. We, you know, we, you know, part of the, the last few, I think the last chapter of the book says, it, you know, talks about building a pro-public movement. You know, it's our stuff. It's stuff we all need. And it needs to be ours, or at least it needs to be under our control. Um, then, as I said, it's, you know, when there's a proposal to outsource something, there are lots of grassroots efforts around the country that have stopped them because they've asked the hard questions, they've organized people, they've, they've got, gone past that, oh, it's cheaper, better, faster, to realize that, no, it's not. <laughs> and, we, you know, we'll do better in. So... There's, there's very much, uh, you know, this, this can only be won at some levels at the grassroots. And it is being won. I mean, there's, a, there's places, um, Baltimore passed, a, you know, there was a citizens' initiative, you know, ballot, ballot measure, yeah. that citizens put on the ballot and ultimately won to prevent 
forever, the outsourcing, the selling off of their water system. That happened because people made it happen. Are there, um, in, in the process of putting together this book, Donald, did um, you and Alan, uh, um, and, and I hadn't mentioned your co-author, uh, Partly because I was a little concerned about how I might pronounce his last name. McKay, it's McKaylian. McKaylian. Uh, Alan yeah, McKaylian uh, co-authored the book with you. But as as the two of you were putting this book together, um, how much of the book was explaining to people what privatization is and and what they're losing when public goods are, are plundered in the process? Um and, and how much of it is what to do about it, how, to, how, how we can fight back? Well, I'd say most of it is describing it. I mean, the through line of the book is here, what, what you think is privatization, if you have a, a sense of it, is, is bigger than you think and is broader than you think and encompasses more things than you think, number one. Number two is, and at its core, it's about democracy. So that's, that's the through line of the book. It's about taking away our rights and our control of the things that matter to all of us. Um, to, the, to the what to do about it, there, you, know, there's actually, you know, the last chapter is what do you do? But, the, but again, the sort of the through line of the book is to get enough into the, enough into the details, not so much the weeds, but the details of the problems of, of, of privatizing different kinds of things so people know what to look for, right? For example... You know, charter. This is just off the top of my head. Charter schools. Um, I'm sure this is in the book. Uh, you know, the pu- publicly funded, privately operated schools, and there's good charters and bad charters, and that's not the issue. But the the charter schools require some charter schools require their teachers to sign non-disclosure agreements to, to not share their trade secrets, and that you know the tr- trade secrets are the lesson plans, and the point of charter schools. And I would think salaries. Well, salaries, all of the above. But the reason I, I focus on lesson plans, of course, is that the original purpose of charter schools is to create, you know, small schools to innovate, to come up with new ideas and share, right? And so, we, you know, when I tell people that story, they go, I had, you know, they say, I had no idea. That shouldn't happen because whatever we, you know, whether there's a charter or not, everyone should benefit if they come up with a good idea. It's, you know, it happens to be our money, but it's also our thing. It's, a, it's public education. You know, this just popped into my head, and I'm not trying to put you on the spot, but it, it occurs to me that um, that U.S. military operations use a lot of private contractors for a variety of things. What happens to all of them in Afghanistan now that the troops have been pulled out? Uh, well, I, I assume they lose their contracts. Um so I, I, I'm, I'm so they just fold up and go home too. I, I and look for other places to to provide their wares, you know, their services of security. They'll, you know, I, you know, I don't know, but I can only speculate because I haven't. Yeah, I wasn't speculate. trying to put you on the spot, but no, it that's, just that's fine. But I mean, but but here's what comes into my mind when you say that is, again, there are companies that like. Here, I'll take another. It, when when welfare reform happened in 1990s. I think it was. This was built under Bill Clinton. It was really a mass, opening the door on privatization of social services in the country, massively. The, the, the law did that. And who were the companies that started to get the large contracts? Former defense contractors, right? <laughs> uh, Ross Perot's company and yeah. Lockheed and all those. 
And so the reason I raise that is, you know, to, to your question, is businesses, if, they're, if their product line, you know, isn't is useful anymore, they look for something else. <laughs> and I bet that's what these contractors are doing. Well, Donald, now that the, the book is out, The Privatization of Everything, How the Plunder of Public Goods Transformed America and How We Can Fight Back, now that that book is out, what's next for you? <laughs> well, uh, you know, we want to use it to educate people around the country, um, uh, you know, at, at cities and states and at the federal government as well, so that people understand, you know, the depth of the impact of privatization, how it affects democracy, and in particular today when, you know, January 6th, when we're all talking about democracy, it's not just, you know, stuff on, you know, on the news today. It's also about how we provide our stuff. And so we really want to be, I'm going to spend the, we're going to spend the year educating about this and doing book talks and hopefully if COVID, you know, settles down, we'll, we'll do some traveling. Um, so, and then, you know, my organi- organization, I run an organization, we work with groups around the country and, you know, teach them how to, engage in their public services, how to make sure contracts are well done if it's a contract, how to stop a contract if it's bad, how to raise new revenues um, to, you know, to, to just to provide good services. So, you know, our work continues. I'll, I'll also mention that uh, Donald Cohen uh, has had uh, opinion pieces and articles appearing in New York Times, Reuters, Los Angeles Times, and uh, The New Republic, among others. Donald, I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about you and perhaps uh, in the public interest and and your work, past, present, and future. Do you have a website? We do. It's www.inthepublicinterest.org. Um, and you can there's a pop-up, I think, that you can put you on our list. We don't send out a massive amount, so it's just it's all educational. Um, and we have social media, Facebook, and Twitter that people can find pretty easily. Um, I encourage people to, to, to get on. And, of course, buy the book. Cause I guess that's the other thing I'm, I, I'm, I'll be doing this year, trying to get people to buy it. It's a new book. <laughs> <laughs> Do you like that, uh, that part of it, interacting with people and going out and doing uh, Very much so. book signings much and so. all that kind of stuff? Well, I, I, the, the signing I could do without. I have a terrible handwriting, but... <laughs> <laughs> but um, but you wouldn't but yeah. mind some readings. No, it's yeah, it's not. It's, it, I, the readings are fine. I mean, it's not, not the readings, but the, the talking about things. But more, I, I I get more out of the listening. The more about the hearing. Like I learned a lot about, and just in this interview right here, they learn about the trash, you know, in in Flint. So I, you know, I had, and the building that you described. Although I'll have to look deeper in that to fully get it. Um, you know, I spent some time with a uh, in. Uh, October, I think it was, in Niagara Falls, I spoke to a union convention of public sector workers in the state of New York and learned a lot about what they do every day and, you know, and the challenges they have and the, and the good things they do and learned, learned a great deal. I, I, that's the part I, I most enjoy. Well, it's a great note to end on. Donald, thanks so much for spending this time with me and the listeners, and good luck with the book. Happy New Year and keep up the good work. Thanks so much, Tom. Take care. Again, that was uh, Donald Cohen. He is the founder and executive director of In the Public Interest, an Oakland, California-based national research and policy center, and uh, the author or co-author of uh, The Privatization of Everything. We'll have more of the Tom Sumner program straight ahead. 
Hey, <laughs> this is the Unknown Comic, and guess what? You're listening to the Tom Sumner Show right now, and now, and now too, and even now. It's 2022, and this year the Tom Sumner Program begins its 14th year. It would not be here without support through the years from individuals and organizations like these. Seth David Radwell. East Village Magazine. Flint Institute of Music. Hello, I'm Maestro Ricky DeMeg. Flint Community Schools. MTA Flint. Flint Comics and Entertainment. Hamity Complete Food Center. The Flint River Watershed Coalition. W.H. Weiscarver. The Genesee County Road Commission. Long Museum Auto Fair. Thomas Appliance. The Genesee Health Plan, Flip Flip Technology, Mont Community College, Pure Michigan. Friends on Facebook have also helped by contributing to the show's online fundraisers two or three times a year. If you would like to help the Tom Sumner program continue to thrive by becoming a sponsor, send an email of interest to Tom at TomSumnerProgram.com. Add your name to the list of supporters, past, present, and future. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans, and soon, they will be available to everyone. This vaccine means hope. It will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. I want to go back to work, and I want to be able to move around. To visit with Michelle's mom, the hugger, and see her on her birthday. You know what I'm really looking forward to is going to opening day in Texas Ranger Stadium with a full stadium. We've lost enough people and we've suffered enough damage. In order to get rid of this pandemic, it's important for our fellow citizens to get vaccinated. I'm getting vaccinated because we want this pandemic to end as soon as possible. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. So roll up your sleeve and do your part. This is our shot. Now it's up to you. Start your weekend early with the Tom Sumner Program every Friday live at 11. We turn the spotlight on the world of arts and entertainment featuring artists from music, TV, and the movies. Catch everything from the rich local talent pool in and around Flint and Genesee County to up-and-coming stars of stage and screen, plus legends from New York and Hollywood. Hi, this is Greg Nagy. Hey, this is Hopper. Hi, this is Joe By from the Blue Lions. Hi, this is Alexander Zonjic. Hi, this is Mark Farner. This is Maurice Davis. Hi, this is Rochelle Ray. Hi there, folks. This is Sweet Willie T. Hey, this is Steve from the Nashville office. I'm Gwen Pennyman Hemphill. Start your weekend right. Go to 11 Fridays on the Tom Sumner Program. Ellen Sherman, Cleveland housewife and mother. Hi, I'm a nuclear physicist and commissioner of consumer affairs. In my spare time, I do needlepoint, read, sculpt, take writing lessons, and brush up on my knowledge of current events. Thursday's my day at the daycare center, and then there's my work with the deaf. But I still have time left over to do all my own baking and practice my backhand, even though I'm on call 24 hours a day as a legal aid. How does Ellen Sherman do it all? She's smart. She takes speed. 
the tiny blue diet pill you don't have to be overweight to need. And then I collect these paper bags, and I have them right here, all folded and everything. In case anyone needs a paper bag, I have yes, one. Yes, Speed. Because I fold them neatly, you know. I don't fold them just any old way. I Why not ask your family doctor for a prescription today? And, and when that runs out, you can ask your neighbor's doctor, and your mother's doctor, and your college roommate's doctor, and your best friend from high school's doctor, and your babysitter's Oh, I get the uneasy feeling Rod Serling is behind one of those doors. Rod Serling. Rod Serling. What's this, the Twilight Zone? Where is everybody? I would have been headed for the Twilight Zone. Twilight Zone. If I go any lower, I'll be in the Twilight Zone. All right. Oh, but Jethro's right at home in the Twilight Zone. <laughs> I'm in the Twilight Zone. Now, having made this little jaunt into the Twilight Zone, I got a feeling something strange is about to happen. Hi, this is Ann Serling, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. Good evening. This is Charles Collingsworth at the White House in Washington, D.C. For many of you, this will be your first visit to this historical landmark. Our tour through these hallowed halls will be conducted by the First Lady. Good evening, Charles. Good evening. Shall we begin here in the West Wing? Yes. If your cameras will just move through these oak panel doors over here on our left, we will be in the Calvin which was named after our 35th president. I can't help but wish your cameramen had opened the doors before they moved their heavy cameras The doors, incidentally, were a gift from Mrs. R.C. Greenleaf of Raleigh, North Carolina. They were made out of solid oak, and up until a few seconds ago, they stood over 15 feet high. They were lovely. Now we are approaching the Thomas Jefferson Room, which I think you'll find rather interesting. President Jefferson used to come into this room and sit for hours just gazing out the window at the White House lawn. The White House lawn was a gift from Mrs. W.C. Ridgway (laughs) of Hollyhock, Virginia, the president and I decided to leave it just the way it was originally. It's lovely. This football, which has just come crashing through the $5,000 President McKinley French windows, belongs to the current president, who, of course, is also my husband. He's lovely. <laughs> Now we're entering the President Grant drawing room, which I think you'll find rather interesting. We decided to leave this room just the way it was when President Grant left office. I do notice a lot of dust on the furniture in here. Yes, and that dust was a gift from Mrs. <laughs> of Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania. Now, if you'd care to follow me down this hall to the next room, as we go, I should like to point out the various paintings on the wall. Yes, I wish you would point them out. Well, 
says this one and this one. <laughs> and that great big one over there. And this little teeny one down here. And finally this one over here. Thank you for pointing them out. What's in this room over here? I believe we are standing in front of the President Monroe Conference Room. Oh, my darling. Oh, my darling. Oh, my darling. It's so easy to get confused. It's such a big house. (laughs) Now, I believe straight ahead of us is the Blue Room. Yes, this is the Blue Room. We decided to leave it just the way President Blue had it originally. (laughs) Now we are in the East Wing. This is the section we are having completely remodeled. All the rooms are being changed around. Yes, the carpenters certainly are busy, aren't they? Aren't they, though? And those carpenters were a gift from Mr. and Mrs. (laughs) Al Bianchi. Of Hayworth, New Jersey. I find it quite easy to get lost in this section. Yes, I imagine one could get lost in here. Pardon me, pardon me. I seem to have uh, made the uh, wrong turn somewhere. Now, I'm trying to uh, find the bedroom. I just came out of the uh, John Hancock bathroom where I was uh, taking a shower in the Alexander Hamilton bathtub. And I think the that... The carpenters and painters here have been just here. working like beavers around the clock. Which way is the bedroom? The bedroom is where? Actually, the original schedule didn't call for it to be completed until July. But the work has gone. I I should like to point out that I am. I am. I am standing here in my shorts, uh, dripping wet. Now I've. I've got an important conference in uh, 15 minutes. So I must be dressed in uh, ten minutes, which means I shall have to uh, move ahead uh, toward our bedroom with great vigor. Excuse me, Charles. Dear, go down this hall to the Andrew Jackson smoking room, then turn right into the President Taft Rumpus room, across over through the Woodrow Wilson ping pong room, then left at the Dolly Madison Pinnacle Room, through the President Grant Drinking Room, past the Richard Nixon Dumbwaiter. And that's our room. Well, let's see. Now I go past the, uh, the Dolly Madison Ping Pong Room, across the uh, Richard Nixon the Drinking Room, and then I go left at the Andrew Jackson Room. Uh, wasn't that your husband? Yes, it was. He's a magnificent-looking man. Yes, and we decided to leave him just the way he was <laughs> Incidentally, he was a gift. That's nice. This was another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program.
remember the night mom was pounding on her drums. She called me to her side. She said, son, you're growing up. Pretty soon you're going to drive. And daddy heard the commotion and came, came in tap dancing, playing his six string. And they both looked at me and they said, son, before you get behind the wheel of a car, you listen to me. If you're texting while you steer, don't drive. If you've been drinking beer, don't drive. If you're talking on the phone, don't drive. Your tires are bald and it's starting to snow, don't drive. If your foot can't reach the pedal, don't drive. If you're wearing no apparel, don't drive. If you took an illegal prescription, don't drive. And no one understands your diction, don't drive. Don't speed, don't read, don't breathe, don't tweet, don't shave, don't rave, don't wave, don't eat. And don't put no makeup on or shave. You know you're not supposed to do that. If you've got to do something you're not supposed to do, you can go ahead and step on my blue suede shoes. Ah, go ahead and scuff them up. If you're driving with your knees, don't drive. If while you roll, you eat, don't drive. If you don't know how to drive, don't drive. If you've been psychedelicized, don't drive. If you're kissing on your boo, don't drive. If the boo's kissing on you, don't drive. If you've been drinking at a bar, don't drive. If there's guns in the car, don't drive. Don't groom, don't shave, don't. In your ears or rummage through your purse. Ugh, don't do that. Huh. If you won't do something you're not supposed to do, you can go ahead and talk on my food, man. Chew. Go ahead, I don't care. Watch me tear. If you feel like a nap, don't try If there's a pooch on your lap, oh, it's dangerous and creepy. If you're feeling really wired, if your license is expired, don't you drive uh, around the town. You've got to do something you're not supposed to do. You can go ahead and step on my blues way shoes, scuff them up. Then go ahead and pull on my Fu Man shoe. You wanna do something that's good If you're feeling like any of that stuff, don't drive! Make sure you got a clear head Ow! That wraps it up for today's edition of the Tom Sumner Program. There's smoking George Winters tickling the ivories. Let me know it's time to head on down the hall to the living room But I'll be back tomorrow to wrap up our first week of the new year 2022. I want to say thanks to my guests today, starting with this uh, last hour, Donald Cohen, the uh, author of The Privatization of Everything. Before that, we talked to the author of We the Presidents, uh, Ronald Gruner, and we started out this morning with uh, Jared Alexander, author of Volunteers. See you tomorrow. Good night, everybody. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show We want to acknowledge all of our guests who play such an important role in the show and our cavalcade of cohorts from coast to coast for their regular contributions. Most of the musical accompaniment was provided by people in or from the Flint area. 
Many of the pre-recorded portions of the Tom Sumner program are made possible by Flint's own Steve McComb and Pencil Sketch Recording in Nashville, Tennessee. If you have comments, questions or suggestions about the show, find us on Facebook. This is Prue Clearwater. Join us next time for another edition of the Tom Sumner program. And thanks for listening.